fear of social inequalities. One of the most common mistakes we make when legislating is to limit freedom in the name of equality. As I've just discussed, our fears of inequality are really fears of being unfree. These fears can also create inequalities. Through racist tendencies or gender discrimination, these real and tangible issues impact citizens' rights. Racial and gender discrimination are often institutionalized. In the past century, the most obvious cases have been the lack of voting rights for women and people of color. But there are also more subtle issues, less obvious to those who do not experience the same kind of discrimination on a daily basis. Even those who wear the title of social justice warrior with pride often mistakenly assume things based on appearances. For example, I am often told I have no authority to speak on the subject of racism due to the paleness of my skin. But as a Pole, I had to endure a significant amount of racism in Austria and Germany when I was growing up. Verbal abuse like half-blood or subhuman were only the tip of the iceberg, and things often got physical. There are different kinds of racism, and it depends strongly on where you come from. We rely too much on stereotypes, rather than looking at the social and historical context that we live in. Social justice must be unequivocally just. The contemporary definition is the way in which human rights are manifested in the everyday lives of people at every level of society. It is not about picking and choosing which skin colour or gender has more to say. Feminism is not about establishing a matriarchy. It is about empowering women to have the same standing as men in society, and about men being empowered to shed the stereotypes and prejudices that they have been forced to live with for centuries. You cannot have one without the other. Social justice is about changing our mindsets, and that requires everyone to be part of the conversation. Too often, we find ourselves in a situation where the words social justice are met with disgust by one group of people who turn their backs on the issue and with another group engulfing and radicalising the issues and movements around them, even actively trying to shut other people out. You are a man. You cannot talk about feminism. You are white. You cannot talk about racism. You are heterosexual. You cannot talk about homophobia. This type of censorship is very dangerous for society. Liberals are against any kind of impediments to freedom out of principle. But there is more to it than that. Just because someone is not allowed to say or write something does not mean they do not think it. It may make you feel safer if people don't use racial slurs online, but if they still harbour resentments against, for instance, black people, then that is even worse. You can no longer identify them as racists, but they will continue to be racist, make black people's lives miserable, and in the worst cases might come together and act in ways that are difficult for the authorities to see before they become openly violent. Terrorist groups recruit in exactly this way. They identify people that have been marginalised and fuel those people's anxieties in secret until they give in become one of them, and cause unspeakable suffering to innocent people. This goes just as much for radicalised Muslims who feel excluded 
as it does for fascists. In both cases, they feel lonely, forgotten about, and most likely hated. Isolation and prejudice go hand in hand, and both are strong factors that can lead to radicalization. The issue of social justice is not to be taken lightly. It is important to keep an open mind whenever one approaches an issue that falls into this category, no matter how much one has read and experienced. Social justice is not about personal prejudice. It is about the experiences of others. This is where the core principle of liberalism can once more help us to balance how we approach social justice. There are two aspects of liberty, the negative and the positive, or freedom from external factors and freedom to do something. Some argue that they are mutually exclusive and contesting ideals, but I find them to be quite complementary. The basis for liberal policies is always negative liberty. Everyone is free so long as they don't interfere with another person's freedom. Positive liberty is a bit more complex. It posits that there are internal factors that prevent us from being free. For example, addiction. Prejudice can also be a factor. Proponents of positive liberty often argue that the state needs to actively interfere with people's lives and dictate its terms to them to ensure that they are truly free. But who is the state? And who decides what is the right thing to think or say? We are back to our original conundrum. Using positive freedom alone, we enable authoritarians to dictate their own ideas and beliefs to one another all while tarnishing the good name of liberty. The American philosopher Gerald McCallum overcame this issue by simplifying things. Instead of a philosophical contest between positive and negative liberties, he created one unified definition of liberty that satisfies all. A subject or agent free from certain constraints or preventing conditions to do or become certain things. We can use another liberal thinker to help us even further. French liberal philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau also rightfully pointed out that we don't live in a vacuum, but in a society. Ergo, we can only be as free as the society we live in. Thus, if we live in a self-determined society, read democracy, we are as free from constraints as we can be. In other words, Everything that prevents you from openly participating in society must be an impediment to you exercising your freedom. From this perspective, we can make clear policy decisions that remove institutional barriers and prevent the state from overstepping. For example, let's have a look at gender quotas in a company. A quota of 50% women forces us into a situation where, no matter what, we have to hire 50% women. If we have more qualified men, we still have to hire women. Suddenly, we are positively discriminating against women by giving them more opportunities than men. In other words, we are correcting one wrong with another. However, by using our newly established principle, we can come up with a better solution. A 30% quota for men and a 30% quota for women. This policy ensures that both men and women are represented in the company to a high extent, but at the same time, it does not diminish the hiring manager's ability to choose the right people based on arbitrary factors. 
In other words, we can advance social justice because no party is discriminated against. We are neither favouring a gender nor forcing any person or institution to make a specific decision. At the same time, we must always be careful about how we determine representation. If we, for example, were to define five different genders or suddenly introduce an ethnicity quota, we would not only be hard-pressed to find the right people for a position, but we would end up discriminating against people because of arbitrary factors, the exact opposite of what we are trying to do. In other words, equitable quotas can be a useful tool to level the playing field in situations where we find societal bias, but, like every tool, they need to be used judiciously. There are many more examples and more complex policies we could go over, but as we have so many issues to look at, I will now move on to the next one. The main policy recommendation for social justice is to always strive for maximum equity for everyone, but never to allow limitations to universal freedoms, such as freedom of speech, in the name of justice or equality.